Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna have a super, super interesting interview. We're gonna be talking with a female founder, super, super smart. Uh, I think that what they have been able to accomplish is a uh, remarkable uh, building and scaling is not easy, but I think that uh, you know what they've done and, and how they've done it, I think that is going to provide some light, especially in a sector that is regulated, heavily regulated. So I guess. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest to the show today, Jennifer Fitzgerald. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So originally born in the Philippines, but I understand that you did travel quite a bit. So um, so tell us about being born and raised there. Yeah, I was uh, born there on an Air Force base. So my dad was in the Air Force for 20 years. He met my mother in the Philippines. So that's where my journey started. We lived there for a couple of years. To be honest, I don't remember because we left when I was very, very young. Uh, and then after that, uh, grew up on a string of Air Force bases across the U.S., everywhere from Mississippi to Texas, uh, graduated high school in Virginia. Uh, and since then, I've been in Florida, Central America, and then New York for the last 15 years. So um, with the exception of my uh, adulthood in New York, I've been all over the place. Wow. So that, how was it for you to not have like a, like one place, you know, with, with your friends and, and all of that? I mean, what kind of impact did that have for you? I think it, having met a lot of um, fellow military brats who moved every few years, it can uh, either be a super positive thing or it can actually um, be uh, pretty stressful, uh, depending on how you react to it. For me, uh, I loved it. It caused me to be um, resilient, to be able to adapt to new situations, meet new people, uh, and just at an earlier age, I was far more comfortable with like who I was and my place in the world just because I had to reevaluate it every few years. Got it. And you went to college in Florida, is that right? I went to college in Florida, go Seminoles, and then law school at Columbia. Very cool. So why did you think that it would be a good idea? And this comes from a recovering lawyer, huh? still seeking therapy. Why did you think mm -hmm. it was a good idea to go after law? Uh, I was deciding between law school and business school uh, after spending a few years uh, in Central America 
And uh, I decided to go to law school, one, as I thought the degree would be a bit more useful than an MBA, no offense to your MBA listeners. And then two, I'm all about optionality and keeping doors open. And with a law degree, you can either go the law route or the business route. Um, and that optionality uh, I liked. And you chose uh, you know, to study this, but before this, you actually did a, a little bit of time in Peace Corps and then also in, in the World Bank. So any any kind of like uh, lessons learned or or highlights from from these two uh, chapters in your professional life? Yeah, it was amazing. I spent uh, four years overseas being basically the only American around. Uh, so it forced me to live and work in another language, another culture. Um, again, just part of this theme of me, you know, pushing myself into new environments. And I often like to talk about the Peace Corps as my first entrepreneurial experience. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with it, it's, you know, two years of service in a developing country. Um, you live and work at the level of um, uh, your counterparts there in the local society. So I was a assigned to work with a mayor and a local government in Western Honduras. And you land there and you're basically on your own for two years. Um, and you have to work with your counterparts there to figure out what you're going to work on, what's going to deliver the most impact. Uh, and interestingly, the thing that I worked on for two years was building a software system for a municipal government there. So they uh, didn't have a lot of revenues. It's a very poor country. And um, the opportunity that I spotted was to turn their paper-based tax collection and info management system into a very rudimentary uh, local area network and software system that I duct taped together using the Microsoft suite of products. I'm not technical um, and uh, still still am not, but was able to put something together that delivered a lot of impact for them. And for a split second um, after my Peace Corps service, I thought, huh, I wonder if I could turn that into a business and you know sell this software to other local governments. Uh, that was back in 2003 before SaaS was really a term. Uh, and then I was like, yeah, that seems like a crazy idea. And I went and worked for the World Bank for a few years. Very cool. And probably were you frustrated with how things, you know, in these types of uh, of uh, of organizations, you know, how, how slow things move? Yeah. And the World Bank, I mean, I had a terrific experience and the people there are so, so smart and very mission driven. Um, but it is a very big bureaucracy and it takes months and months and months to um, work on something, get it approved, get it implemented. So um, I think the thing that drove me from uh, working at an institution like the World Bank to moving to the private sector was speed and the ability to drive impact faster and on a potentially bigger scale. So let's talk about the journey after law school. What, what did you do? After law school, I decided not to work in the law, and I uh, wanted to work on the business side of things. So I joined McKinsey as a consultant. And one, you know, like one of the uh, things that I see a lot, you know, it's a repeated pattern is that a lot of founders come from consulting. Why do you think that's the case? I think because you get exposed to a wide variety of industries and a wide variety of functions in a short amount of time. Um, so you get a bit of a taste of strategy, you get some experience in operations, you get some experience in marketing and distribution. Uh, oftentimes you'll work across industries. So I think it gives you the ability to look at something at a 20,000 foot view and a 20 foot view. Um, and it gives you a sense for, huh, maybe I could go um, start my own company because I've at least dabbled a little bit in a bunch of different industries 
industries and a bunch of different functions. And here is actually where where you got the inspiration. You know, you got the introduction to the insurance industry. I mean, there were obviously different companies that you were probably consulting with. Uh, and perhaps, you know, like one of the companies, you know, touched this space and you saw something. What did you see? So I uh, worked for several insurance companies at McKinsey. My very first engagement, as a matter of fact, was with a big life insurance company. And I was in their uh, back office operations trying to find ways to cut costs because this was the height of the 2008 financial crisis. So my very first... um, my very first experience at McKinsey was in the insurance industry. I did a lot more insurance a- engagements after that. And I think there were a few light bulb moments for me and uh, my co-founder, who was also a consultant at McKinsey. One was, you know, we were getting hired by all the big insurance companies to tackle some flavor of the same question, which is, how do we think about growth and capturing more market share when the market is quickly changing underneath our feet. Uh, If you look at how insurance is distributed in America, it is still predominantly delivered by brick-and-mortar insurance agents. Those agents are getting older. Most people don't have face-to-face relationships with an insurance agent anymore. So, you know, that confluence of factors together led us to to spot an opportunity to uh, create what would eventually become Policy Genius. So you met also your co-founder. So why why do you think that you know in this case you know you guys saw each other as the um, as the potential good fit or or the good marriage you know for for a potential business opportunity to happen? I think part of it is just the uh, the blinding optimism that you have to have as a founder and entrepreneur to to believe that things are going to work out um, and that you. Both of you are a good fit to be co-founders. We worked together quite a bit at McKinsey, so I think we had some familiarity um, with working with each other. Um, We spoke to a lot of friends and uh, friends of friends who were founders a bit further along in the journey to get a sense of what it's like, the discussions we need to have as co-founders before we get into it. So um, there was a lot of hand-wringing and soul-searching before we, we both took the plunge. So what kind of discussions did you guys have? Uh, I mean, the first one, like, who's going to be CEO? Um, what what did we want to get out of it? Uh, what does success look like for both of us? How do we think about splitting up the responsibilities um, if and when we get to the point that there's just more than two of us sitting at a table working on something? So um, it is a lot like a marriage. And I think the advice that you see for, for marriages is, is have, the, have the tough conversations up front. And for a marriage, it's like kids, money, politics, religion. Um, and for co-founders, I think the, um, the, the tough topics are who gets to make decisions? What does success look like for both of you? Is there going to be an eventual power struggle over who gets to be CEO? Um, what happens if one person wants to sell and the other person doesn't? Um, those sorts of things are we had up front, which I think helped quite a bit for us. And I know that the CEO discussion, that's a, that's a tricky one. So uh, how did you guys have- tackle this discussion? Yeah, I think the thing that made it easier for us is, one, I was more senior than him at McKinsey. Uh, two, and I was actually uh, his manager at McKinsey. Two, um, I think the skill set for being CEO, a lot of which is like being public facing um, and you know being a good storyteller to investors and the media is something I do um, naturally well, and it's something that he doesn't like doing. Uh, and the third piece was um, neither of us has a lot of ego. We just wanted to build a really great company that served a lot of people. So 
uh, I don't think you saw the ego dynamics that sometimes befalls other co-founding relationships. A hundred percent. And I always tell founders that it's not about who is right or who is wrong. It's all about what is right for the business. Exactly. And what's right for the customer. A hundred percent. So, so then uh, let's talk about the, uh, so you guys are exposed to the, to the industry, to the insurance industry. You start seeing all these problems. You guys start to brainstorm. What does that process look like from the minute you see the problem, the existing problem out there to the moment that you finally got a solution and you guys bring it to market? Sure. So for us, uh, it was a lot of researching into the market because I think my my first question and really our first question was, does something like this exist in the market, right? So I think we wanted a very good sense of what is the actual problem that we're solving and is anybody out there solving the problem in the way that we think it should be solved? So it was a lot of market research. It was a lot of um, looking uh, at different companies, how they approach the problem. Um, it was looking at other industries where models like Policy Genius exist and not necessarily financial services. It can be in travel, um, it could be in, um, you know, consumer packaged goods like Amazon. So we just spent a lot of time pressure testing what the go-to-market approach would be, what the ultimate model was, uh, talking to founders, um, getting initial feedback on the idea. So it was just a lot of research and conversations for the first few months until we landed on what we thought was going to be the winning model and approach. Uh, then from there, we quit our jobs and built an initial version of the website and our first product flow um, to see um, what consumers thought of it and to see if, you know, our idea that people would engage online with an independent managed marketplace for insurance was something that was actually going to uh, work in the market. So what was the, uh, the testing process like? I mean, you got this MVP, like you were saying, and you were putting it in front of people. So what kind of data points were you looking for? Sure. So we were looking, one, for qualitative feedback. Um, uh, especially around the tone, the language that we used, how we th how we talked about insurance as a product, how we how we presented pricing, and our first MVP because uh, we're both consultants, you do what you know was uh, pages on PowerPoint decks, uh, and then you know in the background we were the algorithm like coming up with the prices and things like that. So um, it was our MVP was um, PowerPoint and Excel. And once we got enough qualitative feedback that this is something that resonated, people understood how to make an insurance decision and were ready to proceed to the next step, then we actually, um, you know, found a product designer uh, and our initial um, head of engineering to start building the actual um, digital experience. So for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Policy Genius? So we are a managed marketplace for insurance. You can think about us like um, any other managed marketplace, be it um, Amazon or Seamless or Expedia. So we match uh, consumers who are looking to buy insurance with the insurance companies on the back end. Got it. So then, so then what were the early days like? The early days were um, the two of us probably spending too much time on uh, an initial pitch deck uh, and then realizing, oh, wait, we should probably um, get uh, uh, an MVP and an initial product in the hands of consumers uh, sooner rather than later. So it was looking for the initial people to join the team. So uh, that was a product designer. That was our head of engineering. And, um, you know, quite possibly one of the... Um, 
best early decisions that we made. Our next employee was a content producer because we suspected that investing in content SEO early would pay off dividends in the long run. And it has um, in a big, big way. So that was some, that was a decision we made probably month one of starting the company. And why is this industry so difficult? Oh, everything about it is difficult. So from the macro context, it's regulated. It's regulated on a state-by-state basis, uh, which means that um, to get licensed as a broker or licensed as a carrier, you have to deal with state-by-states. Um, the regulation of how you can market products, engage consumers, uh, is also done on a 50-state basis. So you have to make sure that you are in compliance for all 50 states to bind the product and even just like have products and prices, um, those will differ by state, sometimes by zip code. Um, So you have to reflect that in uh, the pricing engines and the comparative raters that you build. Um, And so that's just like on an industry context. And then if you shift from the consumer mindset, nobody wants to talk about insurance, right? Uh, Insurance is uh, something that's intimidating. It's boring. It brings up... um, difficult topics like death and mortality and your home burning down. So it's a category that's super important to consumers, but one that they inherently distrust. So the consumer challenge is how do you get people to take action in a category where they are just dreading it uh, and they put it off like exercise and eating healthy. And this also sounds like a massive undertaking. I mean, what the hell did you guys do to reduce the learning curve? Um, we had a little bit of a head start because we had worked in the industry at McKinsey. Um, although that is uh, night and day different from like starting a company and trying to sell products to consumers, the most humbling thing that you can do and probably the best way to move yourself up the learning curve is actually trying to sell. Uh, so for the first, um, two years of the company, my co-founder and I we were the sales reps on the phone. We were the customer service agents. So we were actually taking the phone calls and advising customers on their insurance decision while also building the product, recruiting a team and raising money. Um, And there is no better foundation that you can have than actually talking to your prospective customers and trying to sell a product. So what did you learn about selling a product? Uh, the big thing that we learned was, one, trust is paramount. Uh, unlike other um, financial services verticals, like lending, for example, lending, the trust equation goes, the lender has to trust the borrower and trust that the borrower will repay their money. Uh, in insurance, it's the opposite. The consumer has to trust that the insurance company is reputable and will be around 5, 10, 15, 20 years when there's a claim on the policy, right? So, Building that trust with the consumer is absolutely paramount. And there's no uh, silver bullet for building trust. It's in all the little things, right? The language that they use, how many insurers that you have on the platform, how you present price, how you ask for information. There's all these little things that you have to get right to build trust with the consumer. I think the second uh, big thing that we learned and it's something that made us distinctive in market and still makes us distinctive in market is the blend of the digital with the human. When it comes to insurance, uh, what we learned and what the backbone of our model is, is that people want it to be digital, self-service, and easy up until they don't. And at the moments of truth, which are when you have to make a claim or when you pull the trigger on actually 
buying a policy, they want to talk to an expert and they want to have that human touch, even if it's just for a few minutes, to feel comfortable that they make the right decision and then they're in good hands. Got it. Got it. Super interesting. And, and one thing that I saw, I mean, obviously, when you are uh, dealing in regulated environments, you're going to obviously need as well to, to get some money, right? Because there's just so many things that you need, you know, lawyers, I mean, you name it. So so how do you guys go about, um, how did you go about fundraising? <laughs> very, <laughs> uh, very difficult situation. So when we uh, started building the product, we bootstrapped for a while. Uh, but then to your point, this is expensive. It's a regulated industry. It's capital intensive. Uh, and because it's direct to consumer, customer acquisition will require a lot of investment. So uh, we tried to raise a seed round of capital from uh, seed funds and venture capitalists and couldn't do it. Uh, pitch dozens. Nobody cared. Nobody got it. Nobody liked us. And so we, but we still had a lot of conviction in what we were building. So we did it the hard way and we pitched friends, family, angel investors, friends of, uh, friends of McKinsey partners, McKinsey partners themselves. And we raised a little bit shy of $750,000 from about 50 individuals. Um, who are all still on our cap table, uh, which is which is fun. But a lot of a lot of other companies had a similar background. I was just talking to somebody who was familiar with Peloton, and they had to do the same thing. They raised their you know initial round of funding from from individuals, uh, like a hundred of them, uh, or some amount who are still on the cap table. So that's what we did to start, and um, we were able to stretch that money for basically two years. Uh, until we raised our Series A round of capital uh, after we had already launched. So what was the turning point in order to really get the institutionals on board? I think the turning point was a couple things. One was we were able to get some traction and show that we could build a product. We were more than just uh, ex-consultant PowerPoint jockeys uh, who advise on strategy and build decks to somebody who could actually um, build a team, build a product, get something out in market, uh, and then two, our initial proof points around, hey, we're actually able to sell very complicated products like life insurance and disability insurance um, through this approach finally broke through um, and got the attention of institutional investors. And and what what has been the, um, because how much capital have you guys raised uh, today? We've raised over $50 million. And I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, you guys have um, you know really good investors: Norwest, Venture Partners, Revolution, Susa Ventures, even you know some insurance companies in here. So, what was the uh, what was the journey like of of really being able to get in front of these people and closing them? Uh, it was hard, and then eventually got easier. Although it's never easy, right? Because the later rounds just get bigger, um, and so your proof points have to be um, you know that much stronger. But I think success begets success. Uh, the other thing that happened in the industry overall is, you know, we were um, ahead of our time. Bef when we got started, insure tech wasn't a thing. Uh, there were only other a few other companies tackling in, uh, insurance from like a startup and tech perspective. It was Oscar, it was Zenefits, and it was basically us. Um, and since then, uh, InsureTech has exploded. There is a annual conference in Vegas that like nearly 10,000 people go to. There are dozens of newsletters. There are hundreds of InsureTech companies all within the last five years. So we were a pioneer in the space. And when the space started to catch on, um, I think that's what created a lot of interest in us uh, and a lot of realization that, oh, 
um, those guys were onto something. Because when we started pitching insurance, you know, five, six years ago, we got questions like, really? Is this an opportunity? Is there money in this? Uh, which seem like silly questions now, but they were questions that we got, um, you know, five, six years ago. So was it like then investors coming to you and receiving inbound interest via email or, or what was that like? Uh, yeah, now, yes, um, because I think uh, we have now established ourselves as a leader uh, in insurance tech, which is increasingly a bigger part of fintech overall. Uh, and there are a lot of things that we have done that other companies haven't. Uh, I think people look to us as the leader in terms of customer acquisition, particularly in uh, creating a very strong organic SEO base. Um, people have looked to us uh, because we were, again, on the being being on the forefront of trends, not just insurance, but things like podcast advertising. We were one of the first advertisers in insurance tech and fintech uh, to go heavy into podcasts. We went there in 2015, 2016. Um, and a lot of the big podcasts, we've la locked up uh, exclusivity for our category because we've been there for a few years. Um, we were the first to go to the personal finance blogging community. Um, there were a lot of other companies from the credit, lending, wealth uh, side of things. We were the first insurance-oriented company to approach uh, the bloggers. Um, and that's how we built our initial following. So um, we've been very good at, you know, spotting trends uh, and tailwinds before anybody else catches on. Got it. Really, really cool. And, and why do you think the insurance tech space as a whole has exploded? Like in the, I mean, literally in the past couple of years, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was unheard of. Yeah, exactly. Even even really five years ago. Yeah. Uh, I think the big thing is just timing, uh, as most things in life. Um, we, we saw insurance as basically the final frontier. If you look at all the big verticals in financial services, um, insurance was the last one that hadn't really spawned a digital first, tech first oriented company. You'd seen it in payments. You know, PayPal was the first to, to kind of break through. Um, you've seen it in lending. You've seen it in wealth. You've seen it in banking. And insurance was the final frontier. And, and for example, in, in your case, um, I understand that investors were very impressed with your playbook when it comes for growth. Why is that the case? Or why was that the case? Because it's hard. Uh, anybody who's uh, tried to acquire customers in financial services or insurance knows how hard and expensive it is. Uh, one of you know one stat that I like to talk about is uh, Google AdWords. Right, anybody can go in and start you know bidding on AdWords in Google, and the most expensive set of AdWords relate to insurance. So um, I think the thing about our playbook that uh, has investors taking notice is we've been able to figure out how to acquire customers um, in a way that doesn't make our economics upside down. We have shown significant growth year over year, so like tripling volumes, but our customer acquisition costs we've kept flat. Uh, and that's a dynamic that you hardly ever see. Usually when you're like scaling very aggressively, your acquisition costs go up, right? Because you lose um, advantages in channels, channels get more expensive over time. Um, we've shown that we can grow significantly and keep those customer acquisition costs basically flat. So any recommendations for the folks that are listening on how to keep the, the customer acquisition uh, costs stay flat? Sure, uh, a few. So one is, um, especially if you're a consumer-focused uh, company, um, channels change 
all the time, right? So I think, you know, three, four years ago, everybody was on Facebook advertising and Facebook was the thing. Um, now that's not the case, right? Costs have gone up significantly on Facebook and you see a lot of companies retrenching uh, from Facebook because of the cost of acquisition and the shifting demographics, right? Facebook users are getting older and older, older. Younger consumers are actually spending more time and attention elsewhere. So um, the big thing is making sure that you've got a marketing team, an engine that is nimble and can move into opportunities um, before anybody else does. Um, because it's just, there's no silver bullet. It's a lot of hand-to-hand combat and channels. Um, and as soon as people start to catch on, that uh, arbitrage in that specific channel begins to erode and compress. So you've got to move on to the next thing. Um and that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is you've got to build a brand and a product that solves uh, a customer pain point. And so we have always just been laser focused on solving the customer problem, providing the best customer experience and market. And what that has done has generated a lot of organic referrals our way. Up until recently, we haven't had a paid referral program. Um, our customers have just referred other people based on the great experience that they had. And that's generated a significant amount of inbound volume for us that's quote unquote free. Got it. Because I also insurance, uh, you know, insurance tech, you know, the, the market as a whole is massive. So how, how big is it? Um, in terms of premium uh, every year that consumers are spending on insurance, it's in the hundreds of billions, right? Um, home and auto insurance is about $300 billion a year. Life insurance is $150 billion a year. So these are, these are big, big markets. Wow. So then, for example, in, in your guys' case, and, and perhaps for the people that are listening, what, are, what were your or what have been your biggest takeaways on how do you tackle such a big market like this? Uh, for us, it's been... Uh, and it's probably uh, applicable to other companies, you got to focus. And so that means figuring out where the biggest opportunity is that you have a strong right to win. Um, Because when you're small, you can't take on everything at once because I think you're going to do everything um, not well, right? And that's not going to move the needle. Um, One of the analogies we talk about internally is don't move 20 footballs one yard. You want to move a handful of footballs to the end zone, right? Um, So we have just been very, very focused on where we have a strong right to win, proving that out, and then expanding horizontally when we're ready. Got it. And in your case, uh, you know, approaching the, you know, we were talking about the fundraising earlier, and I just want to follow up on that. Uh, Up until recently, I mean, very recently, it has been like this, this uh, boys club that, you know, complete nonsense, you know, and this comes from a father of three little girls. So I'm very glad that this has been changing, but you have been at it, you know, like for for five or six years now. So so then my question to you is, did you have you seen like this change, you know, in this boys club mentality and and did you did you feel like that disadvantage at any point? Um I don't know that I felt disadvantaged because I was a woman, uh, because I don't know what it's like to not be a woman. <laughs> so I don't have the, like the AB test there. I think, listen, I think being an entrepreneur and founder is hard regardless of your backstory. Um, I think what's made it harder for me, um, is, and it, it's true regardless, I think of being a man or a woman is being a first time founder. Um, I didn't have a successful startup brand on my resume. So for example, if I were um, somebody who came from Airbnb or Facebook, I think raising capital and getting support for my own company would have been easier, um, man or woman, right? So I think 
you know, just being a first time founder who's not from a successful brand name startup company, it's just going to be hard, full stop. Um, and then coming at it in an industry where very few investors had any experience, which was insurance, um, is also harder. So my parents like to joke, I love to do things the hard way. Um, and I just took the probably the most difficult possible route uh, into starting a company. Um, but that said, I've had you know good experiences by and large with the VC community. I've got an incredible um, board of investors who are incredibly supportive uh, and have believed in um, me as the CEO and founder, and then us as a company um, for the last several years. Got it. So for the female founders that are listening, what piece of advice would you give them? Um, keep at it. <laughs> if you uh, if you've got a, a solution or a product that solves a real market problem, uh, keep at it and find, and find, you know, the folks that'll believe in you, whether that's investors, whether that's employees. Um, but you gotta stay, you gotta stay persistent. Uh, and I think one of the things, um, early on that helped is, um, I built a lot of credibility with my work at McKinsey and the relationships that I built on the insurance industry side. So that's something that I could bring to the table that shows, um, Hey, I've been, working in this. I'm experienced. I have relationships. I know what I'm talking about. Um, one of the sayings that my dad, who's ex-military, likes to say is you got to have your shit in one sock. And um, <laughs> as a I woman, it. it as a woman, it doesn't hurt to have your shit in one sock. Um, you know, is it fair that you've got to have, um, you know, your shit in one sock more than the guy next to you? Maybe, um, but can't hurt, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so then how big is the company today? We are uh, 250 people. Wow. So uh, how did you also grow yourself in parallel with that company growth so that you were not outgrown by the business? Great question. It's something that I am working on every single day um, because every single day it's the biggest company I've ever led. So uh, I think a few things have helped me along the way. One is um, trying to be open to feedback from employees uh, and from uh, our investors too. And this is probably the most helpful thing that I've done is building a peer network of CEOs and founders of similar stage companies or uh, preferably companies a little bit ahead of us um, to sanity check how I'm approaching things, understand you know what things I'm dealing with are common versus uncommon, uh, trying not to reinvent the wheel on things. It's It's been huge and it's allowed me to um, try to change the arc of my own uh, development as a leader um, and help me, um, you know, scale with the company. Got it. And I guess the uh, the industry as a whole, I mean, where do you see it going? I think there's going to be a lot more um, investment. You're going to see a lot of a lot more insurance tech companies over the next few years. I think it's still very much early innings for the space. Um, because you still haven't seen a big breakout company, you know, go public or um, get acquired for um, a huge exit. So I think it's still early innings. I think what you're going to see broadly overall in financial services uh, is consolidation because of how difficult it is to acquire um, customers. Uh, I think that's why you're seeing a lot of companies on the fintech side now trying to be the bank 
right? So um, everybody's like launching their savings product, their checking account, their debit card, their credit card. Um, and they might have started um, just with a budgeting app or maybe investing. So you're seeing everybody expand horizontally to try to deepen their share of wallet with the customers that they're already acquiring. And so I think consolidation is something that you're going to naturally see happen over the next five to 10 years. Got it. And I guess in, in your in your own journey, uh, Jennifer, you know, the um, the journey is tough, you know, of being a founder. So I guess looking back, what would you say, you know, has been your toughest moment and, and how did you overcome that moment? I think the toughest moment for me were it was the early days of just, you know, a lot of self-doubt, getting told no, not having um any strong idea of what I was doing in terms of raising capital, hiring our initial employees. And a lot of self-doubt creeps in, especially if you are um, of the uh, insecure overachiever archetype, of which I was, and I think a lot of founders are. Um, you're used to knocking down walls and you know uh, getting ahead by just putting your head down and working harder and smarter than anybody else. But that's not necessarily the recipe for uh, being a successful founder. Um, you have to have muscles that maybe you've never exercised before. A lot of time it's on the sales side. Quite frankly, a lot of it boils down to timing and luck. Um, are you working on the right problem at the right time, um, in the market? And, you know, a lot of things are out of your control. And I think realizing that a lot of things were out of my control, um, well, it was a difficult transition for me, but, um, acknowledging that every day is something that's gotten easier and easier. So when, you know, you're hearing the word, no, I'm sure there's a lot of people that right now are, are thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening and I'm hearing the word, no, you know, back and forth. And, and, you know, maybe they're like questioning themselves of why they're doing this. If they're the right people to do this, what, what words of wisdom would you have, you know, right now to share with them? So I think the, the big thing when you're hearing no and no and no is to be able to judiciously figure out what's valid feedback, right? Um, and thing that and things that you should actually take into account about your approach or your business model or the product and service that you're building, right? Sometimes the no's are actually um, uh, based in things that you should take into account. And sometimes the no's are just arbitrary, right? Or it's a timing thing or somebody had a bad day. Um, it's almost impossible to be able to distinguish between the two buckets. Um, but it's absolutely vital that you do, right? Because sometimes you're getting a lot of no's because you are building something that actually isn't addressing a real problem, right? What you've built is a solution in search of a problem, and it's not a fundable idea. Versus you have built something that is a compelling solution to a real problem in an addressable market, um, but you're not, your pitch isn't connecting or you're talking to the wrong people, right? Um distinguishing between, you know, which bucket you fall in is, is really tough. Uh, and I think the only thing that you can continue to do is seek feedback from people that you trust and be open and receptive to the fact that you might be wrong in a few things. And you might need to adjust something about your business or your pitch or your product and service offering, um, in a way that's going to actually, um, resonate with the market and, you know, with potential investors. Got it. And there is a one question that that I always ask the guests that that we have here on the show, and that is knowing what you know now, Jennifer. Uh, if you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with let's say that you know professional that was still in in McKinsey and and, and thinking about making the leap of faith and starting a business, 
what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why? I would tell my younger self to um, chill out a little bit and enjoy the journey more. Uh, I think, uh, especially through my 20s and 30s, I was, you know, very, very focused on achieving goals, what's next, um, you know, uh, kind of listening to the inner anxious voice about I have to do more, I have to do it faster. And I think earlier on, I would have benefited more from just enjoying the journey, um, still doing the right thing, still taking the right risks, but be a bit more relaxed about it. So, for example, now in your own case, like, how are you enjoying the journey? Um, I, you know, uh, take time to um, see friends, <laughs> which I didn't a few years ago. Um, it's even like just like basic things like that, right? Just carving out a little bit time for yourself or realizing that um, an extra hour of sleep versus an extra hour of work isn't going to make or break the business at this point. Um, so just even like little, little tiny things uh, make a huge difference. Got it. And just to, to really uh, wrap it up in on Policy Genius, in a, in a world where the vision that you have is fully realized, what does that look like? That looks like Policy Genius being a household name. That looks like people coming to Policy Genius to make their insurance and financial uh, shopping product decisions the same way they um, kind of default go to Amazon for everything else. Really cool. And for the folks that are listening, Jennifer, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? The best way to reach out, you can visit us at our website at policygenius.com or I am on Twitter at Jen L. Fitzgerald. Amazing. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.